0: I'd like to read a few verses from Psalm 92. This is called A Song for the Sabbath Day. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night, with the ten-string lute and with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands." Father, we do this morning sing for joy that we belong to you in this chaotic world where so many people are literally lost in in virtually every sense of the word. We're grateful that we have been found by you. And Lord, that you have drawn us to yourself and that you're working your good work uh, in each of our lives. And Father, we know that that doesn't mean that we are excused from all problems and trials, but we know that it means that with us, that you will be with us no matter what comes our way. And Father, nothing comes our way that is not allowed by you and and known by you. And so Father, we, we give you praise this morning and we give you thanks for your loving kindness and for your faithfulness. And Father, we ask that you will bless our understanding of your Word and Lord that the Word of God as it's heard by your ears will become part of our nature, of our character, that we in turn will uh, be a sweet aroma of Christ in the world in which we live today. We just trust you now to be present here with us even as you have promised in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you'll turn to Second Samuel chapter 12, By the way, if you're hoping that by the time we get done with chapters 11 and 12, that things will get a little less uh, sorted, chapter 13 is just as bad. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, reading at verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die." Last week, we began to look at that uh, particular passage of Scripture. And what we discover discover here, first of all, is that Nathan gave to David no hint whatsoever that the story that he recounted to him in the first six verses of this chapter was a parable. He didn't tell David it was a parable. He let David believe that he was uh, giving him an account, uh, you know, that he was supposed to deal with. And uh, therefore, Nathan allowed David to, in effect, condemn himself out of his own mouth. (laughs) Notice Nathan's timing. When David rose to the height of his indignancy, Against this this rich man in the parable, uh, Nathan drove the sword of conviction right into his heart and said, "You are that man. You are that man. You imagine that? I mean, we're 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 in the palace of David. Now we, we can't view pa- David's palace like we might view the palace of Louis the This is not Versailles, uh, but but nevertheless, it's it is that the house of David, and it is unlike the other houses in Jerusalem at this time and. And it is the seat of power of the Davidic empire. And there were probably courtiers in, in the room at the time listening to this whole encounter. And what is interesting is that as Nathan makes this point, you are that man, in effect, the rich man in the parable. It probably took David a few moments when he heard that to grasp what Nathan is saying here. And when he did, we discover David is dumbstruck. Under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, Nathan goes on and lists the things that we read here this morning in verses 7 and verse 8. He says, I saved you from Saul. I anointed you king over Israel. I have given you this empire. I gave you everything that Saul had. I, 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 referring to God. Did all these things. You are nothing without me. Is in effect what Nathan was saying as the words of the Lord. Verse 9 records an unanswerable question that was put to David. In the light of all these things that God has done for you, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing this evil in his sight? These, these verses point out two major truths. The first truth is that we are without excuse when we sin against God. We have no excuse. We can't say, but God, but God, you know, you made me this way. I've got a disease, you know, some other thing. There, there is no excuse. And second of all, that flagrant sin is the result of despising the word of God. As Christians, whenever we commit sin, we're violating God's word because God's word is the standard. It's called the canon of the scripture. The word canon means the rule, the standard by which everything is measured. And that is our standard by which we live. And, and when we violate that standard, that is by definition sin. And so we are violating the Word of God. And the longer we persist in that state of sin and refuse to confess it to God, more intentional we are in thumbing our nose at God and, and at His Word, in effect. Now, at end of class last time, we read this passage from Numbers chapter 15. I'd like to go back to it again today as we uh, look further in this chapter in 2 Samuel. In Numbers chapter 15, reading at verse 27, these are laws relative to the Sabbath, but, but also, in, as we see in this passage, relative to, the, to offerings being made for sin. Verse 27, also if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall, ta- shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel and for the alien who sojourns among them. But for the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people." Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall, completely, shall be completely cut off and his guilt shall be upon him. When David first walked on his roof, on the palace roof, and observed Bathsheba bathing down in the courtyard below, he may have been innocently walking up there on the rooftop. And when the lust of the eye grabbed him, he may have initially Initially, it may have been an unintentional sin, but the rest of the events of that evening and the following weeks and the following months were anything but unintentional. They were very intentional. So they shift from the first few verses of that passage in Exodus to the latter verses of that passage. Most of us are familiar with the first chapter of James, and in the 14th and 15th verses, we read these words, each one is tempted, when he is enticed and carried away with his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. For the true Christian, the death of that particular James verse is the severing of fellowship with God and being subjected to the discipline of God. This is a miserable condition, and it remains upon us until we as believers confess our sin and repent of our sin. But there are many, as we well know, who live uh, around us and in the world today, who claim to be Christian and persist in sin, always excusing it, always rationalizing, saying, well, but the scripture doesn't really say that. What it really means is, you know, making scripture politically correct to fit in with the world in which we live, never acknowledging it as sin, never repenting of it. There is serious doubt, of course, in that situation, whether that individual has ever become a true believer in Jesus Christ. Many people have this sense today that a Christian is somebody who simply adheres to a particular denomination or church or fellowship of some sort, and and, and they, they miss the point of the new birth. Just as you and I were literally born into this world, and and that's an undeniable fact, so the new birth is just as literal. It's a real thing that happens. And uh, without that, there there is no redemption. There, There is no transformation of that particular life. And so as we read in the 15th chapter of Exodus in verse 31, Referring to the person who persists in his sin, does it defiantly, who is despising the word of the God of God as a result, and continues to exist that way, uh, the scripture says that person shall be completely cut off and his guilt shall be upon him. And in, in reference to the 15th verse of the first chapter of James, the death there now means eternal separation from God. David persisted in his sin for probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a year. We don't know exactly. We know it was for sure the full nine months that Bathsheba was, was pregnant. And then, of course, after the birth, because the, the child dies as an infant. We are not told how old. So we, we can assume that was roughly a year that, that David persisted in his sin and, and defiantly resisted the, the spirit of God who spoke to his heart in the still small voice. He finally yielded to the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit. However, when it was delivered as a hammer blow by Nathan, thou art the man. you know. I don't think Nathan said it quietly either. I think he was pretty loud. He yielded then to that voice of the Spirit, and he repented of his sin. Why did he do that? Because even in his sin, he was a true child of God. He was a man who knew the Word of God. He had walked with the Lord for so many decades that God had become part of the warp and woof of his very being, and therefore when conviction finally struck and and he he heard the voice of the Spirit, he was made helpless and and he repented of his sin. He could no longer stand the condition of broken fellowship. The so-called sweet singer of Israel who wrote so many psalms, and will write more psalms, couldn't stand that, that condition of, of being disfellowshipped, as it were, from God any longer. That's the difference. The, the person who, who defiantly sins against God and continues to live that way and goes to his grave that way, I believe, is the person who never really knew God in the first place. And as a result, he is completely cut off and he, his guilt shall be upon him. But I believe that the true believer, who can get himself in a stinking mess, as, as David did here, uh, will one day repent and, tra- and, and allow the Spirit of God to transform his life. In verses 10 and 11 of this passage, we discover since the sin of David was twofold, first the adultery of Bathsheba, and then secondly, the murder of Uriah, the punishment then was twofold as well. For the murder of Uriah, the Lord proclaimed that the sword shall never depart from your house. That's a tragic statement. Powerful chastisement for for what David has done. God forgives him of sin, but the repercussions remain. Um, You know, sometimes we have such a flippant view of sin that, well, we're, we're sinning, but, yeah, I'll ask God to forgive me and everything will be a-okay. Well, not exactly. Repercussions last. The damage that's done to our character, maybe to our reputation, as it would, in David's case, continues. And, and what we're going to see is that the fu- beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy concerning the sword being never departing from David's house begins in the very next chapter. It's part of the sordid 13th chapter. Of First Samuel. You, you know, you think the 11th chapter of David's adultery of Bathsheba and murder of Uriah is bad, but the 13th chapter you have a rape and a murder also. So, I mean, you know, it doesn't improve here. In the 13th chapter, we have the murder of Amnon, who is the son of David, by another son of David whose name is Absalom. And then later we discover, five chapters later, that Absalom is killed by Joab. Well, Absalom was in rebellion against David, but still David said, please don't harm him. And Joab, of course, does his own thing as Joab always did. And then later on, we discover another son of David will be executed by another son. And that's Adonijah, who will be executed by Solomon. And so here we have the sons of David being cut down, cut down, cut down. And then for the adultery with Bathsheba, the Lord proclaimed, that I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. He shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. That's a terrible thing. And and this was fulfilled primarily in the life of Absalom. Absalom will rebel against David. Absalom will try to take over David's kingdom. And one of the things he will do is take David's concubines. We'll get to the 16th chapter of of, uh, 2 Samuel. As I said, things don't improve a whole lot. And we come to, to that, where he purposely, in public, lies with David's concubines. And, and then, maybe in a much smaller way, later on, his son Adonijah will try to get David's last wife for himself, Abishag the Shunammite, the, the lady that kept David warm in his final years. He will try to take her for himself, and, and that's one of the reasons, primary reason why he will be executed. So, I mean, you know, talk about a tragedy of, of a family. And, and then there's another consequence, too. This isn't, I don't think, part of the prophecy here, but it's a consequence of what David does because when we get to 13th chapter, we discover that David's son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar, Absalom's sister, and that's why Absalom kills him. I mean, you know, it just goes on and on and on. It's, it makes the soap operas almost look tame in comparison. In verse 12, we discover that God blew David's cover. He said, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel. No more secrets, David. The scripture is very, very clear. We cannot hide our sin. And I don't think that just means from the eyes of God, because we know that we are open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And and we know that there's nothing we think or say or do that God doesn't see. But it means more than that. He will expose sin. And he does the exposure of sin not because he he likes to see people squirm, but because he knows that's what drives people to repentance and warns others of the humiliation the great pain associated with flagrant sin. I mean, you see that even in the email that goes around today. Uh, Rachel's folks in their email have to point out the failure of the chaplain at the the hospital. And when they exposed it, then he repented. So it's kind of a very similar type situation. In Luke 8.17, we read, for nothing is hidden that shall not become evident, nor anything secret That shall not be known and come to light. It's God's word. We can do all we want to try to hide it, but we're dealing with Almighty God who can do all things. In Proverbs 28, 13, we read, He who conceals his transgressions shall not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Generally, if we're hiding our sin, we're trying to hide it from God, too. That's what David was doing. David was acting like it didn't happen. Well, it's royal prerogative he rationalized to himself. I mean, kings do it everywhere. (laughs) Well, David isn't supposed to be a king like all the other kings. He's supposed to be an example of of a godly man and all these pagans surrounding kings were to receive that testimony. Solomon, of course, understood this. (coughs) He had good reason to. And so at the very, very end, of that rather interesting book of Ecclesiastes. He writes these words in Ecclesiastes 12:13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Why? For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So we've, we've heard it said that our lives are an open book. Well, sometimes our lives might be a hidden book to somebody near to us who would like our lives to be more of an open book. But before God and in His ways, all of our lives are an open book and, and nothing nothing is hidden from Him. And He will bring to light this, the hidden issues of our lives, which are sin, I'm not saying he's going to expose some weakness that we have that just happens to be there. But but sin, when we perpetually continue in sin and don't acknowledge it and don't repent of it, he is going to bring it to light and it's going to be tragic as it was for David. Just just think if David had repented of his sin the night he committed adultery with Bathsheba, the difference it would have made in, in this whole story. Well, God made it clear that he was going to chastise David before all Israel in, in broad daylight, as it were. Why? Why, why does God do that? Uh, does God delight in humiliating people? Absolutely not. Uh, God does not delight in humiliating his people. God takes no pleasure in discipline or chastisement. This is, you know, God doesn't, you know, ring his hands and say, mm, I'm going to get him. You know, this is the kind of attitude that sometimes people have about God, and that is, that is not God at all. But His love is so great for us that He will do whatever it takes to bring us to obedience, to repentance. He will do whatever it takes. You know, sometimes when we're doing the communion, we, we have a tendency to not really pay uh, close attention to the latter verses of the passage, which says that uh, if we do take the communion with sin in our heart and, and lightly in and other things, that, that the result of that can be tragic. And it talks about there that as a result, people were sick and people were dying in the early church. We, we tend to view these things as being so much just a a ritual we go through that we don't realize there is, sometimes we don't realize, that there's a powerful spiritual reality here. And, and, and the spiritual reality is, is in all aspects of our lives if we're believers in Jesus Christ. And, and constantly viewing our lives as walking in a world in which the unseen world is the more real world and what's going on there is, is the real war and the real battle. It's like thinking about what's going on in Israel today and, and the, the Palestinians and the Israelis and, and the Christians who are over there uh, stopping to realize this isn't just an old fight, you know, that goes back to uh, Jacob and Esau or something. This is a spiritual warfare that's been going on through the ages. And, and Satan is desiring to destroy every remnant of the people of God, whether they're walking with God or not. Because he sees in those people that God ultimately fulfills his prophecies and his plan. And so we have to constantly be aware of the fact that we are walking in the midst of a spiritual battle. And, and God wants us to, to walk with him in all of this. And if we get off on the other side, he's going to bring the pressure necessary to bring us back. David's public punishment not only served to dissuade David from repeating such sin, but also served as an object lesson for Israel. And for all who would read that account, which is us today because we're reading that account, it's, it's a lesson to all of us down through the pages of history. You know what is, is tragic is, if you go back through the history of the church, Uh, going back to roughly maybe the 4th, 5th century and and moving on, when the church became so liturgical and so institutionalized. And, you know, the the Bible was translated into Latin, for example, in one particular group of Christians. And as a result, when when Latin, which by that time was really no longer spoken by the common people at all because the Germanic tribes had overrun most of the Roman Empire, it it became uh, a language so separated from the people, the people didn't know what the Bible said because they couldn't read it. And, and then, of course, they didn't have it. And then, of course, as you go further in the Middle Ages, they were illiterate and couldn't read it, even if they had it, in any language. And, and as a result, you have people ignorant of Scripture. They only know what the priest decides to tell them, which wasn't usually very much. And so object lessons like this would be lost to the majority of people, because they wouldn't know the story. They wouldn't know the truth of the story in particular. So we're blessed because you can read this story in, in 20 versions if you want to, all in English. You know, you can read it in, in, in everyday street vernacular or, or you can read it in, in, you know, the King James Version in all of the glory of 16th century Elizabethan Shakespearean English, if you like. You can take your pick. So it's not hidden from us. David, of course, was devastated by God's scalpel-like excoriation, As we read earlier last week from Hebrews chapter 12, and we we know the verse because most of us have memorized it, God's word is like a sharp sword which penetrates right down into the very core of our being. And so David was laid open by this sword of God's convicting spirit and by the overpowering light of God's truth. God's truth is like a multi-million candle power searchlight at about two feet away from us, you know. Just blazing with truth. So what does David do? He makes no excuses. He doesn't say, but, 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 but God. It It was Bathsheba, you know, like Adam did in the garden. Instead, he honestly confessed his sin before God and before Nathan and whoever else was in the court that day heard the confession. And I don't think David just said, oh, man, I'm sorry. I think the emotion was just overflowing. I mean, he had, he had dammed it up for a year. A man who had walked day by day in the Spirit of God, who had known God's strength as, even as a child as he walked, kept sheep. Can you just imagine the emotion that burst through that dam when he admitted that he had sinned? I think he blubbered like a baby for a long time. God's love is manifested in that he didn't want David to despair. And so God immediately spoke through Nathan, assuring him that as a result of his confession, his sin was forgiven. God, in his great mercy, pardoned David. Pardon is a wonderful word because pardon means that you are forgiven or, or, or that you what's removed from you is not simply the punishment, but the guilt. You're made as if you had never sinned in the first place. That's why somebody who is pardoned from a crime, somebody in prison who's pardoned from a crime, that's much better than simply having your sentence commuted, which means, well, you served long enough, we'll let you go free. Uh, it, it, it's, it, the the, the slate's slate is wiped clean. It's like you never were convicted in the first place of the crime. And so God pardons David here. And as noted earlier when we read from Leviticus, both adultery and murder were capital crimes in Israel according to law. Even David had condemned himself. When he said of the rich man in the story who had not murdered anybody, he had just simply taken a little sheep and from a poor family and used it to, to feed this, this traveler, David said he deserved to die because he showed no compassion. I mean, out of his own mouth, David condemned himself because he was, in effect, that rich man. Yet God, in his response to David, says, you shall not die. You shall not die. That underscores the mercy of God, the mercy of God. Mercy of God is so eternally important, despising God and his word, as was David. We may not have committed adultery with our friend's wife and then murdered him, but we have done things that are parallel. We have thought thoughts. We've had attitudes. I mean, we are all as guilty as David was guilty that day. And yet Christ took the punishment of the sin that, that we have committed upon himself. And he took the guilt as well. And God says, you shall not die. You shall not die. We understand better than David did because David's understanding of, of life after death was not as clear cut as ours is because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. Jesus Christ hadn't come and, and given the uh, parables having to do with the eternal life and, and the uh, doctrines and so forth. So, so David had this view that when you died, you went to this place, kind of a shadowy place called Sheol. And it was called the place of the grave. And and the idea was you continued to live in this place. But there there wasn't this clear-cut picture that we have of the separation of the evil from the good and and of the joy of being in God's presence and the pain of being cast away from God for those who died without him. And so we know what it means better than David did when when God said, you shall not die. Because he wasn't just talking about physical death. Sure, to David that was probably a bigger issue than it would be to us. Uh, to David, physical death was 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 a loomed as a bigger issue uh, because of this rather hazy view of what happened after that. But for us, who knows what, who know what you know? In general, we know enough to have faith. We know that physical death is is, is just a a gateway that we pass through uh, to to a far better world. Unfortunately, Nathan had another accusation to lay at David's feet. Yes, David, you've been guilty of this sin, and and God has forgiven you. You shall not die. But David's heinous sins and the attempt to cover it up for a whole year had given occasion to the Lord's enemies to blaspheme his name. Because of David's hypocrisy, the surrounding pagan nations and those in Israel who didn't want to believe in the God of Israel had an excuse to wag their fingers and say, Ah, look, this is the example of, of the great man of God, and look what he has done. So they had opportunity not only to ridicule David, but to ridicule David's God. That's a time we always wish that people who do terrible things, would stop claiming to be Christians. You read it all the time in the newspaper. Oh, God told me to go kill this person. Or, you know, I read in the Bible and I read the Bible every day and yet I think I should go kill gays or or whatever else, you know, it is. Brings ridicule. And so many in our society today look at the disgraceful and lustful, greedy Things that some high-profile leaders do, whether they be televangelists or priests in a church, do these things. And people say, if that's what a Christian is, I want nothing to do with it. That's blasphemy to the name of God. Because God's God's pride isn't hurt by somebody blaspheming his name. And God is almighty. He's all-powerful. He's very comfortable in his position. And people can blaspheme and tell their horse if they want to, and and that doesn't hurt in God's pride. What God is concerned about is that he sent his son to die for these people. And this blasphemy closes their hearts to the truth and turns them away from ever believing that Jesus Christ died for them. And that's what pains God because he's not willing that any should perish. And blasphemy, which which causes his name to be made mud, so people are, are turned away, repulsed from him instead of drawn to him, this causes God great pain. Well, the chastisement of God came upon David for this latter problem of the blasphemy that his sin produced in the death of the son that was conceived by the adultery between David and Bathsheba. The baby, of course, died of no fault of his own. He was an innocent baby born into this world. His death, however, is really a display, further display of the grace of God. The removal of the child, because this child was the child of an adulterous relationship. This would eliminate the visual reminder of David's folly and would at least reduce the humiliation and the blasphemy. If that child had lived, he would forever be a reminder, not only to David and Bathsheba, but to everybody of what uh, David had done and, and forever be the butt of jokes and blasphemy. But for the child, it was mercy as well. Dying as an infant, he went into the presence of God and didn't have to live a life. Can you imagine the stigma that that baby would have lived with? All of his life, people would be laughing behind his back and saying nasty things because he was the product of this adultery. Really, the most notorious act of adultery in the history of the human race. More people know about it than any other act of adultery that's ever been committed. Incredibly, as as you and I well know, most societies in history have viewed illegitimate children as if they were responsible for their situation. I just can't get that. You know, I understand that. It's like, you know, there's a perfectly good English word, and it, it's the word bastard. And of course, whenever we hear it, we kind of, you know, draw back from it because of the way it's been used, it's hurled out as an epithet. It's, it's, it's used as a pejorative term, but it's just a statement of a condition. I mean, a person was born out of wedlock. And well, it's not that person's fault. He had nothing to do with it. And yet the person becomes condemned for the rest of his life as if he had done it on purpose. It's, it's stupid. But he would have had to have lived with that. And he could never have become king in Israel simply because he carried that horrible load. And his own family would have always viewed him, wrongly so, but always would have viewed him as some sort of a pariah. So the death of the child was a further demonstration of the grace of God to David, to Bathsheba, to this child himself, as well as in many ways to all of the nation of Israel because it took away this point of blasphemy or this object that could have been a reminder and continued to stimulate blasphemy. Well, I'd like to read the next few verses. We won't uh, delve into them uh, today, but beginning at verse 15 so that we're thinking about them for next week. Verse 15, So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow, notice, she's not called David's wife, she's called Uriah's widow, bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child. And David fasted and went and lay on the gro- uh, all night on the ground. And the elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground. But he was unwilling and he would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering, verse 19, but when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground and washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord, remembering that's that tent in which he had installed the ark, the, the temple has not yet been built, and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you've done? When the chi- while the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. Notice his understanding of the grace of God. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Well, next week, we'll look at that passage. It certainly shows you uh, being a man of God's own heart because he had this incredible depth of compassion at the very core of his being that the chastisement the, uh, that he suffered the rest of his life hurt. It hurt probably a few people because, because of that. You see it here. You see it uh, with Nathan when he hears the parable and mm-hmm. you see it again and again. Heart-wrenching. Yeah. But, but I think the point you know, that you're saying there that it, it really reveals who David really is deep down in the very core of his being. He truly was a man of God.